I got this video emailed me from a friend of mine who he, he runs a Bible college in Uganda. And this is one of the pastors in training at their uh, mission school. And they're, they're kind of sharing the, the turn in this man's life. Did you notice, you notice he lost his dad. When he was abducted, his dad was actually killed. And friends of his were actually killed. And if anybody tried to leave this child army, they were killed. And he had to carry the camp chair with bare feet for the commander that he was under. And the leadership that was being exuded in his context was anything but kind, anything but compassionate, anything but good. And at the end of this guy's uh, work in this, if I can call it that, in this child army, he's tempted to put down the rifle that he was... Uh, holding for Joseph Kony, this terrible leader in Africa, he was tempted to put that rifle down and pick up another, another gun altogether, pick up that gun for the National Army, and to go fight Joseph Kony, who had taken away his childhood and who had killed his dad. And he wanted to do him. In fact, he talks a little bit about cannibalism, isn't it? Did you hear that all there in that video? It's a little bit scary. The leadership that this man experienced was anything but good. And then he heard something else that said, because of God's word, I forgave Joseph Coney. Because of God's word, I put down this machine gun, and I also put down the possibility of picking up a whole other variety of machine gun and having revenge. I had stopped being a participant in this terrible cycle that's going on in Africa and the part of the world where he's from, and I started to pick up God's word. And I started to think about maybe I was called to something else. And all because he heard God's word. Now, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He at one point says, I'll lay down my life for my sheep. He says, I will speak to my sheep and they will know my voice and they will follow me. I know who they are. They know who I am. And to me, there was something amazing about watching this video and thinking that this little child who was abducted into the bush of Africa and put into this terribly malicious army, and it caused to do things that we could only imagine. I mean, this is beyond my ability to even think about. He's actually called to this somehow because of this terrible event in his life. And he puts it all away because he hears the voice of the good shepherd, the leader. And he turns a door on all of the hurt and the scars that must have torn apart his soul. And he moves towards this other reality, the voice of God. And he starts to hear Jesus. And I got to tell you, I remember the first time I heard Jesus. And he, he starts to hear Jesus and he says, I'm going to shut the door on all that stuff. And if you saw his face, you saw what I thought was dignity and joy and enthusiasm for a new life. When I got this video this past week, it's a friend of mine, again, who heads up this ministry, and he knows this guy. And it was just, I thought, wow, what an amazing picture. Leaders disseminate their vision. That's what they do. They communicate. Every week I hear sermons. Uh, you can podcast messages from all over this country. You can podcast our messages. You can uh, listen online. We have this thing called the State of the Union Address as a country. Every once a year, our president, whoever he may be or she may be, speaks across our world. And anybody can turn on the news and listen to this message. We have all sorts of leadership paradigms and all sorts of leaders who are giving these compelling visions. And we're supposed to hear them, right? But on the night that Jesus is betrayed, he does something altogether different. He's spoken to thousands of people. They've gathered on hillsides, Matthew 5 through 7, maybe Jesus' longest sermon and certainly his most famous one, is given on the side of a mountain and these people gather around 
At points, he does these dramatic things like feeding 5,000 of them, breaking a few small loaves and fishes into enough food for just loads of people. And they follow him and they follow him. But tonight, those people are all missing. And he's down to just a few disciples. And he's headed across the valley. He leaves the upper room, according to one writer. He leaves the upper room where he's been having this dinner, where he's washed his disciples' feet, where Judas has finally made the decision to betray him. And he's on his way to the Mount of Olives, where Judas will show up with a Roman guard and where they will actually capture Jesus and take him to this kangaroo court that he's headed towards. But on the way, he stops. And he does something that he doesn't do any place else in the New Testament. We have no other record of this. Now, Jesus prays all over the place, but we don't have any record of what he says, and we don't have a record of him actually praying out loud. And the words that he prays on this night are all recorded in John chapter 17 for us. And let me tell you that I believe they're the best picture of leadership you're ever going to hear. In them, Jesus says, I am after eternal life. I am here to communicate this, this gospel, and I'm here to do that. But he's not talking to you or to me. He's actually not talking to the disciples. He's talking to his father. If you're like me, you get jaded. I came home yesterday, and there was another uh, pamphlet on my door, and those vary between Kirby salesmen, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Chinese restaurants. That They just leave stuff on our door periodically. And I get those things, and I don't even look at them anymore. I don't, I don't care. It could have been, I'm not sure whether it was a Chinese restaurant or whether the Jehovah's Witnesses coming to share with me. It didn't matter. I just chucked the thing in the trash, right? That's how we get with our life. We get to hear the same things over and over because people are trying to influence us. They're putting new commercials on TV. They're giving us all sorts of things we could attend, money we should spend on behalf of making ourselves better people. And yet in the midst of this, Jesus does something altogether different. He doesn't give another speech. He doesn't give another dramatic illustration. He doesn't even heal anybody. Instead, he stops and he prays. If you want to know what someone's made of, Their interior life is where you'll find that answer, right? True character is found not out here. Anybody can kind of fake a few acts. Even the miracles of Jesus were done by other people. But what happens when he shares his heart is altogether different. So I want to read for you that prayer that's in John chapter 17. And I'm just going to move forward and read that with me. Before I do, I want to pray. Before we read this, because what Jesus, what we're going to read in this, in this passage of Scripture is literally him talking to his Father. It's literally a communication between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I suspect that there's something different about this passage of Scripture over and above passages in Ecclesiastes and Judges and Genesis. This one actually records for us not even just another sermon, not just another message of Paul or even Jesus. It's conversation between God himself. And we're going to hear it, and we're going to listen to the best leader the world's ever known, and we're going to hear his heart this morning. So join me in prayer. God, we would pray, because like those people thousands of years ago, we need to hear our shepherd's voice. Like this young pastor in Africa who was called out of a child army, we need to hear our shepherd's voice. And I don't know where the people in this room are at. I don't know what challenges they're facing. I don't know where they're going to be tomorrow or the next day. But what I do know is that you are their shepherd that you are their leader, and that that word shepherd is your favorite word for describing leadership, and that when you use it, you're describing much more than a compelling vision. You're describing much more than motivation and enthusiasm. You're describing much more than, than a desire to get people synergized into a group activity. You're using it about individuals who you love and you deeply care for. 
you're using it about eternal life. And we would pray that as we read this prayer, your words given to us, we pray that we would again hear our shepherd's voice echoing in our hearts and in our ears. Lord, thank you for the fact that we have this. Thank you for the fact that we can read it, that we can hear it, that we can listen to you in your heart all these years later. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand, if you would, just in honor of Jesus' words. This is John 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. Now listen in this prayer for what Jesus considers eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave to me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be as one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may, myself may be in them. You can have a seat. When Jesus came and offered this prayer, you can only imagine. This is different, right? This is different than speaking. This is different than leadership talk. It's actually just this conversation between God and man. It's just a quiet prayer in a corner. And the fact that he allowed all of his disciples to hear it was just grace in itself, allowing them to hear the conversation that had probably been going on for years. I don't know what you pray about. 
I don't know where your heart is. I don't know what you wish for. But this is Jesus' wish list and maybe his most poignant moment. And what he talks about is eternal life. This is eternal life, he says. This is eternal life. And what I want for these people, what I want for this world is eternal life. I'm used to everlasting life. I'm used to hearing about words that tell me that, you know, our life is supposed to go on and on and on. My dad told me when he was a kid, he heard about heaven and he heard that he was going to have to float around on clouds and play a harp. And he said, I'm not sure I want to go. If you've read the great book, uh, Tom Sawyer, you remember that classic book? I just love Mark Twain's writing. And he writes about Huck Finn, he, who gets captured by the widow Douglas. She's a really God-fearing woman. And she decides to take him off and to uh, make something of him. And this, if you remember Huck Finn, he's kind of this character who never has pants that fit him. And he smells. He doesn't take a bath. And he never goes to school. All the other boys in the village kind of wish they were him because he gets to avoid all this stuff they have to do. And the widow Douglas takes him and she's educating him and she's teaching him all this stuff and he just finds it irritating. So she's teaching him the Bible one night and, he, and he's all scratchy and, you know, I don't, I, he says he doesn't like his clothes. And the widow Douglas says, well, don't you want to go to heaven? If you want to go to heaven, you've got to read God's word. And he says, well, is my buddy Tom Sawyer in heaven? And the widow Douglas says, well, I know Tom Sawyer. I don't think he's probably going to heaven. And Huck Finn says, well, then I don't want to go either. That's what we think of everlasting life, right? This life after our lives. This what happens when we die. In fact, I've had people try to lead me to know Jesus by telling me, do you know where you'd go when you pass away? Which is kind of an appropriate question. But when Jesus says this word, eternal life, this is eternal life, what we're describing and what we think of most of the times are far too small. It's not where we go after we die. It's how our lives are changed when the Holy Spirit works inside of us. Jesus came and said these words about this very line. I came that they may have life and have it to the full. That's not life later. That's life now. That's life that changes here in the moment. And the prayer that Jesus offers on this night is a prayer that our lives will be altered. There will be something different, that we will be transformed in that eternal life, which is this gigantic thing that results in us living with God forever and eternity, also has us being transformed and altered in the present. And instead of this compelling vision and this great speech, he pulls the disciples, these few people who are still following him after most people have kind of given up, and he pulls them into a corner and he starts to pray and he says lines that alter and change our hearts and help us to understand what the voice of the shepherd truly sounds like. It's very different than most of the leadership that we hear in our world. It's very different from most of the compelling visions that we hear in our world. Instead, what it is, is it's just a prayer. But it's a prayer that has significance that's so poignant and so profound. It roots itself deep inside our hearts, and it alters us, and it causes us to recondition our ears and to start to hear for ourselves our good shepherd, as opposed to all of those other shepherds that we're surrounded by day in and day out. Are we hearing the voice of God? We need to ask that question. Are we interested in the actual eternal life or just some temporary life, just the newest self-help critique techniques, this stuff that comes along a dime a dozen every day? And in John chapter 17, Jesus kind of outlines for us, and I want to walk through a few themes that he, he brings out in this prayer, what eternal life really looks like 
what it is that we're supposed to have, what the birthright of every Christian is, every person who calls themselves by the name of Jesus. The first of these comes in verse 8. It says, they knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I'll call it enlightenment. I don't mean that Buddhist stuff. I actually mean this thing that happens inside your heart when you know that you're not the only person in the room anymore. I think after a few years of being a pastor, the toughest job I have is convincing people that God likes them. I really do. I think the hardest thing for us is to believe that God really, really appreciates and enjoys us, thinks we're great, created us for a great purpose, and loves us for who we actually are. When I was a child, I remember thinking that God was this gigantic old man with a big beard, and I kind of drew this white image of him. God had no color at all. He was just white, you know, pure white. And, and he had this beard, and he would look down from heaven, and I knew the bad things I did. I was a real conniver. I would get my brother in trouble all the time. I have a brother that's two and a half years younger than me, and he was horribly taken advantage of. I just got to tell you. And I remember thinking that God was up above me and waiting for me to make a misstep, and then he was going to squash me like a bug. I, I really thought this. I was in this children's choir, and we all sang around the country. We moved around and did these different things. And, and I remember just really wanting to get out of it. It was a lot of work, and I hated it. And I remember thinking, what would God think? He's sitting there with his thumb, you know? And he went, if I quit this, if I quit doing the work of God, will he suddenly start to smush me, you know? Will he, will he, will he just, like, strike me with leprosy? And I had all these pictures. What Jesus tells us is very different from that. What Jesus came to share is that God actually likes people. He really, really cares for us. More importantly, I'll tell you, you know, the, the thing that you think about God, what you know about what God knows about you, is maybe the most important thought you're ever going to have in your life. You're going to understand yourself only after you've heard God really speak about you. And what Jesus says is these people come along, they knew with certainty that I came from you. Something altered in their life. I have a hard time convincing anybody of this, that Jesus is actually Jesus, that God is actually God. And more importantly than that, they actually exist, that they actually care about us. We throw in the church around this word called grace. We throw that word around and we usually mean forgiveness by it, but actually it would be better translated, he just likes us. God actually likes you. And Jesus says one of the first steps in understanding eternal life is coming to grips with putting back all of that stuff out there that you've thought that maybe uh, God was like and coming to grips with who he actually is. It's not that he's not righteous and just. It's not that he's not holy. It's not that he doesn't have standards. But the fact is underneath all that stuff, he truly, really wishes for your best. And we're enlightened when we come to the realization that Jesus is who he says he is and that he wants to offer us eternal life and that we have to believe that and we come to this understanding. That's not where it ends. It goes on. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. When I was 16, I was in this auditorium and I came to the first moment of enlightenment in my life. I'll just call it that. I was sitting in the midst of all these hundreds of kids and this guy got up and he didn't give a great speech. I don't know what he said. It was just kind of unremarkable. But I remember the Holy Spirit just being there for the first time in my life. It was like something happened. C.S. Lewis would write that when he became a Christian, he became the a Christian. He was the least willing convert in all of England. And he really became a Christian because he said, I realized that there was somebody else in the room with me and there was nobody there. 
There was something inside of me that I couldn't explain. And I started to realize God really exists. And what's more is he really cares about me. Well, I have to tell you that since I was almost 17 years of age, all those years ago, I I have not had that conversation with God that just keeps going. In fact, I can look back over my life, and you probably can, and I can see left turns and right turns and directional shifts, places where I haven't listened to the voice of the shepherd, places where God's speaking to me, the kind leadership that led this, this young pastor into the ministry and out of this life of violence. This leadership that was communicating to me all the way back then, I, I turned my back on it during phases of my life. And yet, What this scripture tells us is, Holy Father, the heart of Jesus, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me. God continues on after those moments when we've walked away from him. You know, I'm convinced that insane people drive in the Target parking lot. And I can prove this if if we want to go after the service and go down to Target and you can watch with me for the people who drive there. They, they go so fast, you know? And I didn't used to think people went that fast, but now I have a five-year-old and I go to Target with my five-year-old. And as I'm holding my five-year-old's hand, this is always our, our big deal. I have to hold his hand because who knows what he might do. We know five-year-olds are insane and we know drivers are insane in the Target parking lot. It's a bad combination. So I'm holding his hand and he has this game that he plays. His four fingers and thumb, you know, he tries to change shape so he can slip it out of my hand. And, he, and he, he's constantly, whenever I hold his hand, no matter where we are, he's constantly trying to get free. All the time, his mission in life is to be unattached from me. And he does it with a smile on his face. He's not mad. He likes it. He thinks it's funny. One day we were going down the Target parking lot. We were w- walking down those aisles between the cars. And I heard, you know, an engine coming up behind me, a V6 or whatever it was, you know. And, and it's probably some minivan with a mom in it who's looking back over her shoulder at three kids who are fighting and screaming at each other. And I've got my little boy's hand. And at that moment, he decides to squish his fingers into that shape that gets it free. And his, his hand comes free. And now he is independent, alone in the parking lot with a minivan bearing down on him, and a young mom who's not looking. That's at least theoretically. And I grabbed that kid by the armpit. I let go of the hand, and I grabbed him right here, and I picked him up. I can still pick this guy up, you know, by his shoulder. And I just picked him up and put him back over here. And he just, and he just laughed like nothing happened. It was no big deal. You know, the, mini, the mom never saw it. The minivan wasn't in any, he wasn't in any danger as far as it's concerned. That's because I was keeping with him, right? He wanted free, but I'm not letting him go. You wouldn't either. No right-minded parent would. When God holds on to us, when God protects us, it's not that our lives with him, it's not that our spiritual effort is the big change artist here. It's whether God is in your life and he promises to protect us. It's as though he holds us in the palm of our hands and we walk away from him. We walk away doing our own things. We move and do our own stuff and we, we wander and we go back and forth and we do all of these different things and it hurts us. Believe me, the consequences are there. The hurt that we occasion in our own souls is huge and yet God follows us around in the person of his Holy Spirit. Honoring this prayer that Jesus prayed so many years ago, Father, protect them by your name. Put that name on them and never let them escape. And like my son in the parking lot who tries to get free, tries to break away, thinks it's the coolest thing to go off and try to get hit by some minivan. You know, we do this all the time in our lives. 
And I got to tell you, there have been moments in prayer when I haven't been able to relate to God, when I've walked apart from him so far that I don't hear his voice, that I don't understand where he's gone. And I look back and I realize those are the moments when he's come and found me. And it's because of this prayer. It's because of the prayer of Jesus offering eternal life and not based on the works of Josh Bywork, not based on the, the piety, the truth, the, the devotion in my heart, the, the love. It's not based on any of that. The fact is it's based on him. And it's based on a prayer that took place between him. If this was a speech, let me tell you, I wouldn't buy it. But it's actually not a speech. It's a conversation between God and God. And what they've decided is they like Josh, and I have no idea why, and that they're going to protect Josh, and that they care for me, and they care for you. Isn't that amazing? Our spiritual lives depend on us as far as their quality, as, as far as uh, how well our lives are going to go. Your effort is important. But underneath it all is a God who's protecting, who's caring, who's walking through every moment with us, and it sets us free. It sets us free to explore and to interpret and to understand and to come closer to a God who we realize is always there. There's immense security in that. He goes on to say more in this conversation with his father. Third, he says, Joy, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Now, you may not like this, but joy is really something different. It's not happiness. It's not just a smile on your face, okay? Joy is this belief that you are connected to eternal life, that there is something out there that is more real than here. Paul would explain it this way, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Why? Because when we have eternal life, beyond this life is what's important. Even when we're in the midst of some Roman city and we're in jail, and that's where Paul was when he wrote those words, he's speaking these words saying, I might die or I might live and I have no idea, but the truth is that I have a joy inside me and it goes into the darkness of the, the world's worst situations. It goes into the mundanity of a job I don't like. It deals with that teenager who's walking away and doing things that his parents are so afraid of. It deals with a marriage. It wanders through life's real great mysteries with us. That joy, if we have it because of eternal life, it's there and it's ever-present and it's continuous. You know, all of the disciples, besides John and maybe Matthew, died horrible deaths. In fact, Peter and Paul died under a guy named Nero. He was the emperor of Rome and he was a really particularly bad leader. He was very compelling, had a lot of great skills and leadership, but he actually, to make his palace bigger one day, burned down a third of Rome killed a bunch of people, and then blamed it on the Christians. And Paul would literally be killed under Nero's leadership, most likely. And Peter was as well. But it's interesting how Peter, the guy who wrote First and Second Peter, the disciple who continuously stuck his foot in his mouth, the disciple, you remember this guy, right? He was a fisherman from the northern part of Israel. But it's interesting how church history tells us that Peter died. They took him out and they were going to crucify him outside of town. That's where people were crucified. And when he gets close to the cross, he says, hold, hold, I'm going to be crucified? I can't be crucified. Jesus was crucified. I'm not worthy to be crucified. And it's as though, now you might not call this joy, but it's a little bit of dark humor. And how do you even think of things like this when you're about to die? But Peter says, stop, stop the train. And he doesn't say stop for an appeals process. And he doesn't try to get off the hook and save his own life. Instead, what he says is, I can't die like Jesus. And he makes him hang him on the cross upside down. He says, okay, fine. If you're going to crucify me and if I'm going to die like my Lord, well, then make me upside down because that will signify to everybody who watches that I was not worthy to die like Jesus. Now, you might not think of that as joy. 
But there was something inside Peter's heart that when he comes to the moment where he has the most to fear, he fears this thing that's completely different than I would be afraid of, right? He's not afraid of death. He's not afraid of what might come next. He's not afraid of the afterlife. He's not afraid of the pain. What he's afraid of is somehow living down the humility that he feels in comparison to the greatness of the Messiah, Jesus. And he says, listen, put me on that cross upside down. Put me on it in a way that anybody knowing me would understand that I understood I'm not Jesus and I'm not close to him and I'm small and I'm little and I'm incapable of being all that God created man to be. That was Jesus. He died a long time ago and he rose from the dead. And Peter's joy in his heart told those Roman soldiers, listen, change the way I'm going to die. There is a joy that can walk with you through cancer. There is a joy that can walk with you through the darkest moments in your life. There is a joy that comes from eternal life and it changes everything. Jesus goes on to continue to pray for us. He prays for sanctification. That literally means being set apart And here he says, set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. Our world makes us dark. Gets us dirty. Yesterday I stopped at an intersection and I was thinking about where I was going to go. And I always have this whispering voice in the background of my mind. It's my to-do list, you know. And I think I'm supposed to go right. And then I realize I need to go this way. I need to go left. So I took my blinker and I went from here to here. It's not that big a shift, right? It's about two and a half inches on this little tiny lever to the left of my steering wheel. But I'm sitting at a stoplight, and the guy across from me, you know, I see him explode in the driver's seat. He sees that light that was flickering on this side of my car change to this side. And you could just see it. How dare that guy change his mind in the middle of an intersection? How could he be such an idiot? And he starts to slam on a steering wheel and the words were coming out. The windows were all up in my car so my kids couldn't hear him and I was really thankful for that. And he's just blowing up in there, you know? My my son Noah likes me and my daughter Maggie and Sophie, they both like me. Shelby most of the time likes me. My mom always likes me. Um, Most of our moms, you know, you can't live down the liking of a mom. But the world around me doesn't always like me. And especially people in traffic situations, for whatever reason, tend not to like me. And you know, those things, they cloud your soul. They darken you. Now, that's a really dumb example, but you know what happens in your, in your life. You know what sort of conversations you have with your boss at work or with your spouse or whatever it might be, and you don't feel liked some days. You don't. I guarantee it. You walk apart and you think, I'm not a person who can afford to depend on anybody else. I have to pull my own self up by my own bootstraps. I have to be this strong individual who can make something out of themselves. And all of this because our world, which was supposed to be a place where people liked each other, has grown to be something very different. And into this world, Jesus offers this prayer, set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. What's the truth? That God likes us. That God sent his son to die for us. That God sent his son to die and rise from the dead, conquering all of this darkness and hurt. Whether it's the guy across the intersection from me or whether it's that spouse who left you and said, you know what, I have a better option. Whether it's your your employer who said, we're going to lay you off, we're downsizing. Whatever it might be, those things darken our heart. And Jesus says, Lord God, set them apart. Clean them up. Put them off to the side. This word was first used about temple furniture, believe it or not. It was furniture that was only used in the temple. You couldn't take it home and cook with it. 
You couldn't sit on it in your living room. All of the furniture from the original temple is set apart, sanctified, made holy. It's to be used for only one purpose. We're used for all sorts of purposes in our world, and it darkens us, and it clouds us, and it keeps us from the purpose of God. And we have to come back over and over again to the truth that he offers us. As he's speaking into our lives, he's saying, listen, I care for you. I love you. You know, there are people who I think make it their mission to see other folks fail. That's really true. When they see somebody else fail in our world, they go, oh, look, I caught him. I saw him. And they're like that picture of God I had a few minutes ago. Remember my childhood picture of God with the thumb looking to smush Josh? Well, there's some of us who think that way. Because we've failed in our past, we want to see other people fail. One more thing our souls need to be cleansed from. We have to be sanctified by that stuff to become a part of the eternal life of God and feel his life-giving power inside of us, transforming us and helping us to remember again and again that we were created with an actual purpose, that we were beloved by our creator and that it was worth God's only son's worst moment, the cross, for your soul. That's a lot of love. And he sets us apart and he puts us back on the shelf and he says, listen, you are set apart for my purposes. This world darkens you and gets you all messed up. I will cleanse you again. In Ephesians 5, this is called being washed by the water of the word. And it specifically tells us that Jesus does this for us, for the church. We're to be washed by the water of the word and continuously a part of God's ever-flowing grace I love the picture of grace, the liking of God. It's not like a lake where you jump in and the water's just sitting there. It's like a river where it's changing all the time. And you're getting a new flavor, a new connectedness with God whenever we jump into it. We'll keep going because our time is short. After this, it says, you sent me into the world. I have sent them into the world as well. He commissioned us. We're sanctified for a purpose. We're actually set apart, not just to sit on the sidelines. We're set apart to be a part of his team. When I was a kid, we had this song. My mom used to sing it. And, she, and I, you know, I really should have practiced this beforehand. I'm not going to sing it for you because I really like you guys. Jesus told me I have to like you, so I won't sing to you. That's how it works, okay? But it said that I, will, I may never ride in the cavalry. I will never march in the infantry. I will never shoot the artillery, but I'm in the Lord's army. That was the song we used to sing when I was a little kid. You ever hear that song? Anybody go to one of those Sunday school classes? Oh my goodness, most of the people with their hands up are over 50. I'm feeling (laughs) iffy. That was you, Jay, right? I saw your hand go up, yeah. We're in the Lord's army. Now, I don't want you to join an army. And like that guy in the video, the the guy who was, uh, you know, he was in this child army and he put down that machine gun and he could have picked up this other gun, this gun of the national military. And instead he puts that down and instead he picks up the gospel of Jesus. And he says, listen, we need to go this other way because I've heard my shepherd call and he's called me to a commission. He's commissioned me to be a part of a different military altogether. It's a resistance army, but it's not the same one. It's an army that's in resistance to what our world's about, the brokenness, the hurt, the damage, the sin, the failure that we've all been a part of. God calls us a part of it. He calls us apart from it and asks us, please join my team. Please join my army. I want to commission you. Now, each person's individually gifted. I don't know what your gift is. You have talents I don't have. Not everybody's supposed to speak. Not everybody's supposed to teach. Not everybody's supposed to do any number of different tasks. But God has a mission for you. And he looks at you and he knows what his plan was for you when he created you. I know the plans I have for you. In the words of the prophet Jeremiah chapter 29. 
to prosper you, not to harm you, to do good for you. This passage tells us that we are commissioned, sent into the world, and we're set apart for this purpose, and God loves us, and that's part of the eternal life as well. It goes on, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us, right? Originally, Jesus was giving this prayer to the Father, and then there were people listening, and none of us were there. So now he's praying for us, all those who will come through their message. We came to this belatedly, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Now, you may not like this, and I don't blame you on one hand, but he prays that we'll be one. That means you and I, we're connected. That means he's called us not to just get to heaven alone. It's not just about eternal life experienced off to the side by me in my house and you in yours. It's actually us being called together. Each one of us, talented and gifted, but giving to each other. It's not enough for us just to pursue God as ourselves and our, as individual families. He calls us to do this in unity. And he says, it's really incriminating believe it or not he says that the father and the son and the holy spirit are connected and so we should be connected in the same way the father and the son never have fights you know you know things in my house people fight they do i was upstairs on our third floor we have an attic where our girls live and they have hamsters and you know yesterday i solved 18 different fights between my kids i think that was a small estimate Maybe it's certainly not hyperbole, but I was upstairs today and there was another conflict today and I was working through that with my daughters and I looked inside the hamster cage and the hamsters were fighting. I'm not kidding. We were getting ready for church. I was changing a a dress. One of our kids dressed in something that should not have been worn to church. I was getting out a whole new dress and I'm sitting there and I'm hold it. The hamsters are fighting too. Our world doesn't work right. It just doesn't. And when Jesus prays this prayer, it's a militant prayer. These people aren't going to like each other, some of them, he's thinking. These people are going to look, why would I have to like that guy? Why do I have to worry about going to heaven and connecting and spending eternity with that person? And yet Jesus prays this prayer and he says, may they be one as we are one. May they enjoy the oneness that God calls us to in community. Eternal life includes not just you, but other people. It includes a whole wide gamut of other people. Many of them don't speak the same language as you do. They may not live in the same century as you do. We're a part of this whole gigantic thing called the church. And it goes on for centuries and it lasts across continents and it moves through generations. The last one's the best. This is just simply the best. You know, when somebody likes you and yet you walk into the room, they tell you they like you. I like you. And then you walk into the room and they turn away from you. You know, they, they start a conversation with that person over there. How do you feel? You don't feel very liked, right? I get, my wife's birthday was yesterday. She turned 25 again. And uh, I got her this card and it said, when I walk into a room, I always like it when I see you. They had other words. They were more profound. I think it was written by, you know, one of those writers who writes cards that we, we all have to pay these people to do our job for us as husbands now because we can't actually sit down with a pen. But I got her this card and it said, I really like it when I walk into a room and I see you. You're my favorite person is what it said. And I, I really do think that. We get accustomed to people not liking us. And we're accustomed to people saying they like us. And frankly, even the people I like the most in my life, I like my kids and I think they're wonderful and I wish they were in the other room sometimes, you know? 
But this verse says something different. Just listen. It says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Just stop there. I want those you've given me to be where I am. I want them to be there too. That's called liking somebody. I'd call it love, but that's so Christian and so churchy. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, we're all taught that we don't have to like people. We just have to love them. And I think this really says the opposite. I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. God likes you. And if you don't get that picture this morning, you're missing the whole beginning and end of what this prayer is all about. He likes you so much that he was willing to sacrifice his son. He likes you so much that he was willing to offer you forgiveness. He likes you so much that he's willing to offer you direction in your daily life. He likes you so much that he provides brothers and sisters for you to walk through life with. You might not like that, but he still likes you and that's a sign of it. He likes you to the point where he wants you to spend forever with him. The great church father 1,600 years ago named Augustine said it this way in his prayer, and I think it's kind of a summary. Everlasting God in whom we live and move and have our being, you have made us for yourself and hearts are restless until they rest in you. You have made us for yourselves. We are made to be a part of the life of God. And Jesus goes away and he's looking forward to that moment when the least favorite kiss of his lifetime will be planted on his cheek in just a few moments. Within 24 hours, he'll be dying on a cross, bleeding out his lifeblood. Just a few days down the road, he'll be risen and he'll be leaving these disciples on the day-to-day level. He won't be walking through their existence and they're going to do crazy things. Some of them are going to go back to fishing thinking their life with him is over. Others of them are going to hide out and kind of get reclusive thinking that they, without Jesus, what are they anyway? They're going to wander around this world and they're going to think that they've lost the meaning in their existence. And Jesus calls them away to this quiet place. And he doesn't give them a pep talk like halftime at an NCAA game. Instead, he offers them a prayer. And he says, listen, the best I can do is the best God can do for anybody. I can offer you a part of my life. And a part of my life is when I talk to the Father, you come along and be a part of it. Experience with me the love that I have in this conversation with God. And when you hear it there, it's so much more authentic than somebody just giving it in a speech or it being written in some self-help book for you to learn how to do life better. Instead, he says, listen, this is my heart. And you know it's my heart because I'm talking to God. And this is us sharing the very plan that we've always had for you, the care that we've always wished for you, the sanctification, the set-apartness, the cleansing, the wholeness that you were supposed to have had. I'm offering it to you again. But I'm offering it in this way that lets you know that it is very much in our heart. It is our love for you. Everlasting God in whom we live and move and have our being, you have made us for yourselves and hearts are restless until they rest in you. This is our Jesus. This is our shepherd. This is his leadership, different than any other leadership the world has ever seen. There's good leadership and there's bad leadership, but this is the best leadership. And it takes into account that you are you and I am me. And it takes into account that God called us to be a part of the same movement, in the same room, a part of the same team. And it takes into account our failures and our woundednesses and our hurts. And it takes into account our life stories as they really are, not just as we wish they would have been. And it offers us 
eternal life. Join me in prayer.